So Money Episode 982, the best of 2019, stories of financial triumph. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Merry Christmas, everybody. If you don't celebrate Christmas, happy Wednesday. Welcome to So Money, everybody. You know, this is a a special episode where I have compiled some of the best interviews of the year with the theme this time of financial triumph. So many people have come on this show with stories that capture dramatic changes in their financial lives. And I couldn't put all of them in one episode, but I did pick some of the few that I thought were pretty exceptional. You know, sometimes we don't consider ourselves to be good with money because our financial lives haven't been perfect. But I do think there's a lot that we can learn from our setbacks. We talk about failure a lot on the show. And this episode is dedicated to some of the best moments on So Money where guests revealed their financial challenges and how they triumphed from sometimes pretty great tragedy. There's our stories of strength, resilience, and determination. And we begin with Chanel Reynolds, who turned a personal tragedy into a tool to help herself and others be more prepared for life's what-ifs. She visited the show back in March, episode 862. She's the author of the book, What Matters Most? The Get Your Shit Together Guide to Wills, Money, Insurance, and Life's What-Ifs. After Chanel's husband passed away unexpectedly, she realized she had no idea how to access any of their financial documents. She didn't know how to pay the mortgage. She didn't even have the passwords to his phone. And she was legitimately in the middle of the worst moment of her life. And she couldn't help but think that there have to be others out there who were or would be just as unprepared as she was. So she started to blog about it, write her experiences on her website. And what followed was a lot, a lot of website visitors, mentions in the media, hundreds of stories from people who much like her were unprepared for life's brutal moments. And in this excerpt, she talks about now 10 years removed from that tragic day. How has her life changed? How does she think about money differently? And how is she helping others? Here's Chanel Reynolds. I have to say that it has been nearly 10 years since my husband was hit and we spent a week in the ICU until I decided to remove medical support because that was really the only option left for us and the one I know he would have wanted. And, um, you know, 10 years is a lifetime and a blink. Um, People will ask sometimes if it gets better. And if I had to only pick yes or no as an answer, I'd say yes. But what I really say is that it gets it gets different. And getting my shit together literally were the words I said standing at the foot of my husband's hospital bed to my dear friend when I realized that I, you know, for a English speaking, college educated, legally married, you know, type A kind of bossy project manager. There were a lot of things that I only half did or we had ignored or procrastinated. And the, the things that I, 
that we had done, for example, we'd gotten some life insurance was really, really a lifesaver. And then the other things that we hadn't done, you know, like, for example, we had our wills drafted, but they were sitting in my inbox where they had been for months that caused so much additional unnecessary, what I'd call optional suffering to an already terrible situation. You know, getting my shit together at first was a, you know, survival mode, kind of almost project managing myself out of the terrible situation. And it became really clear that it wasn't just me, that we're all so much more vulnerable than we realized. And you know, if I had a dollar for every friend or family member or stranger who said, oh my God, I don't have my shit together too. I could have honestly helicoptered myself over to see you for this meeting because, um, you know, it's a hard topic to talk about. And I have discovered over and over again that we're really relieved when we have the opportunity to talk about it Mm -hmm. and even do something about it because we think about this stuff all the time. And so it sounds like the hardest part is in some ways just getting yourself to start the conversation, to embark on the work that needs to get done because the work itself is not hard. I mean, you can hire people to write your will. You can go online now and do it. It's more just coming to terms with the why of this and knowing that this is something that you want, have to do, but it's, it's wanting to do it that sometimes um, can be the barrier. Yeah, you know, we do hard things all the time. I have to say, you know, anyone who's got kids or a demanding job or a health issue or I don't know, like knows how to make a hollandaise sauce or build a back porch. <laughs> that's hard. Like we do. Yeah, it's hard. Like a hollandaise sauce terrifies me and building a back porch, I don't think anyone should give me those power tools. But, you know, I've I have figured out how to do hard things. We all have figured out how to do hard things. And I think that it's the, um, you know, almost well, the shame we have that we haven't done it, first of all. Then the overwhelm that we have because it just feels like so much and we don't know where to start. Um, I, I try to think of it kind of the same way that we, you know, get our oil changed in our car or go to our annual exam. You know, if you can, you know, as a you know, a middle-aged woman, I hate to say that, but if I can manage to go get my mammogram and my boobs squished, not comfortably (laughs) every year or two, like clockwork, you know, looking at your life insurance plan or writing down some usernames and passwords or updating your will is frankly much more pleasant of an experience. For you also, I know that when this happened with your husband dying unexpectedly, you were left not knowing, you know, passwords and, and getting access to certain financial accounts. And, and, and I think in that moment, that's the last thing you want to be worried about. You want to be able to have like capacity to tend to your emotions. And if you've got to have to now deal with like, gosh, a username password to a mortgage website, that's just like, come on, that should not have to be on anyone's plate at that moment. Exactly. Like opening mail was uh, an impossible task. I mean, I felt for a while, like I was having a great day if I could you know, put on pants and get my son to school on time with a packed lunch. Like we are, we don't have the capacity during really traumatic, highly stressful and grieving situations to handle, you know, like lots of very important decisions you have to 
handle and often answer quickly. So the money part for me was, you know, whether you have zero thousand dollars or hundreds of thousands of dollars, what you want to know is what your options are. And you want to be able to have what I like to say, some answers in advance. So when I was at the hospital, instead of worrying about you know, if checks were bouncing or if accounts were working or how much money we had. And if I had the passwords to all of the accounts, I wanted to be able to be in the room and focus on my family, have maybe a little more time and energy to read my son a story at night when I got home from the hospital. So getting your money set up for you, um, we often talk about it as, you know, making your money work for you and, killing it and retiring rich or having boats or whatever, which I'm certainly not saying that retiring rich and having a boat isn't great. But so much of what I found I hadn't focused on was how I needed my money to be um, organized and accessible. And I, and I was so much more vulnerable than I realized that basic things like having an emergency fund would have taken a huge amount of pressure off of me so I would have more time to just not spaz out and freak out about mortgage payments. So understanding what my money was and what my choices was, whether I had a lot of options or only a few options, knowing where I stood and what you know kind of lifeboat I had to get in and how big and well stocked that was, I didn't have as much of that as I really would have wanted, you know, in the ground kind of got pulled out from underneath me. If you had to characterize your financial life today, how would you describe it? That's a great question. You know, I'd say that I I have a strong understanding of what would happen if something happened. So I have uh, an emergency fund that is stocked up for um, the six months or more that most people recommend you have. I actually have a, what I like to call a backup emergency fund. And that's something I keep um, just because my parents are getting older, they live out of state. And should something happen, I would want to be able to get there and be there for a certain amount of time. So I have a little emergency savings fund set aside and a credit card that I keep with a very low balance um, just for emergency plane trips. I, you know, there's a lot of, you know, we could talk forever about whether you should put money into your retirement or pay for college or put money into your emergency fund or pay down credit cards. There's a lot of ambiguity or maybe opaqueness when it comes to what the right thing to do is with your money. But for me, as a single parent with fingers crossed, a number of working years still ahead of me, it's most important to me that I I feel like for my life and my priorities and for my family situation, I have my money set up in the way that works for my life um, and maybe not necessarily optimized hardcore for my retirement right now, but I feel very comfortable. Um, and in fact, you know, I like to say for somebody with a high tendency for catastrophic thinking, um, I sleep pretty well at night knowing I can't control everything that happens, but I know what happened next if something did happen. 
Chanel's book is called What Matters Most, and that full interview again is episode 862. Now, going back to the beginning of the year in January, we had on the show Sharon Epperson, a CNBC correspondent. She came on to discuss life after a personal near-death experience. In 2016, Sharon was suddenly stricken with a brain aneurysm, which typically is fatal. But Sharon survived and is now on a mission to share her journey and hope that others can learn from her experience as far as how key financial preparations helped her and her family avert what would otherwise be a financial catastrophe. She told me having a situation where I nearly lost my life was the greatest blessing that I've ever had in my life. Here's more from our unforgettable conversation. What have you changed or adjusted in your own personal financial life in the aftermath of the aneurysm? Um, I know you had a lot of things in place that helped you thrive, but what were there any adjustments that you still made? Um, I think I am much more, I was always focused on my savings, but I'm much more focused on trying to as best I can live, not just within, but slightly below my means um, because I don't know what could happen. And I don't, I'm not anticipating ever having a relapse. I'm not anticipating anything happening, but I just know um, that you just never know. That's that's what I now know for sure. You never know what can happen. So I'm making sure that I'm I'm really paying myself first in in, in many ways, financially, you know, in terms of building an emergency savings, but also in terms of taking care of myself and my health and, and maybe making sure that I'm not overdoing it in terms of trying to do everything that I possibly can for work for my kids, for my husband at the same time to drive myself nuts. I mean, that's just not healthy. And your physical health uh, can have a big impact on your financial health because if you become chronically ill or you have different illnesses, you're not taking care of, it's just important to put it all together. So health and wealth go hand in hand. Um, the other thing that I've done a lot more of, I had automated most of my finances. I pretty much every bill, you know, that I can, I have, you know, on automatic bill pay or, or, um, you know, have automatically deducted from my, from my checking account. And the thing that I've done a little bit differently because my husband and I have each have different accounts for different expenses is that we've clued each other in on all of it and, on you know, passwords and things like that. And I think that's really important too, to kind of, if you're in a silo and, and again, this is whether you have, have a partner or if you're single, you need to have someone that you trust um, be clued in on what your intentions are, whether it's just how you pay your bills or it's a bigger picture of, um, you know, having a plan for who will take care of your kids if something happens to you, who will take care of your finances or your health um, care decisions if you're unable to do that because you are, you have become disabled or you're incapacitated for a short amount of time. People don't think about that either, but um, I think that's something that's very important to think about. Uh, I've had a lot of conversations recently, I guess, because my kids are 13 and 16 and I'm looking ahead to college for my son and to parents who have kids who are now out of the house and they're in college and the parents are still paying for health care and all of that, but they're adults. They're over 18. And if they don't say that they want you to make the health care decision if something happens to them, it's not a given that you're the one who's going to be able to get all that information, even if you're their parent and even if you're paying their insurance. So having some of these legal documents drawn up, um, whether you're 18 or whether you're 81, 
you know, it can be very, very important. And mm-hmm. it's worth having conversations with experts who know how to do this and who can help you do it to uh, to see if you really need it and, and how you can get it placed. Especially this time of year, New Year, great time to do an audit of these kinds of systems that you may or may not have in place. And I think to your point, communication is of the utmost, starting with your partner, but also, you know, looking outside of your home, who, uh, who are some other people you can bring in to help to um, communicate some of these really important moves in the event that you or both of you are unable to make financial decisions or healthcare decisions, whether it's a power of attorney or um, a guardian for your kids. Um, you know, so often we don't pre-plan and we don't set up these systems, Sharon, because this is a really emotional topic. Uh, money in and of itself is emotional, but when you add to it this probably, you know, this this thought process of what the what ifs, what happens, the tragedies, the possibilities, it's it can almost um deter people, right, from actually dealing with this. And so any advice for those people listening who are like, oh, this is just making me so depressed? Right. I just had this great holiday season and now this woman comes on. She's totally depressed. <laughs> right. So if I get hit by a truck. Um, I think you have to look at it the other way. And I actually, thankfully, always have looked at the fact of planning for the unexpected and planning for what happens when I'm not here is the greatest legacy I could ever leave for my children and for my family. And I think, uh, particularly as an African-American woman, culturally, that not being, death not necessarily being something you talk about, definitely not wills and, you know, other than this is what my funeral is going to look like, people just don't talk about it. And I think that it's important in order to um, pass on a legacy of financial strength. If not, immense wealth, it's important to make sure that you've had these conversations. And so after having a holiday season where you've spent time with family and friends and you've enjoyed the countless, you know, encounters and and that you've had with people and, and sharing how much you enjoy being with one another, take that time to also celebrate what you can leave to others in terms of being able to not leave them with your credit card debt, with, um, you know, a house that you haven't really figured out how anyone's going to pay for it if you're not here. Um, I see so many friends that have been left in those situations where you're devastated because something has happened to a loved one, but then you're, it's compounded by the fact that you have no idea financially if this means you're going to have to take on all their financial responsibilities and all of their debts and all of that. There's no plan. Um, and I think that that can just, it's just, uh, it, that's even more devastating because it lingers as, you know, as you're already trying to deal with some of the emotions around a, um, uh, a traumatic experience. So I, 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 I don't know if I'm sounding like it's any happier than, you know, when you initially asked me the question, but I just think it's such an important legacy to have. Yeah. I love that episode with Sharon and how she talks about legacy. You know, anchoring your financial moves to your legacy, the legacy that you want to leave here on this planet. That's pretty powerful. That's pretty motivating. And if you've yet to get life insurance or a will or long-term health care, 
how might that impact the legacy that you want to leave here with your family on this planet? So check out episode 832 from my conversation with Sharon. Next, I want to share part of my talk with Ruth Sukup, author of Do It Scared, Finding the Courage to Face Your Fears, Overcome Adversity, and Create a Life You Love. This was episode 888. Ruth talks about hitting rock bottom after an incredibly difficult entry into adulthood and several attempts to take her own life. Now she's on the the other side of it. She runs a wonderfully successful business. She is a mom, a wife. She's living her dreams. And how she got here was a journey to say the least. And this excerpt describes some of her positive qualities that helped her navigate those extreme lows in her life. And I just want to say for everyone listening, if you're struggling or having thoughts about suicide, please reach out to confidential resources that can help you. There's the crisis text hotline. There's suicide prevention hotline. Both are free, highly recommended. You can text H-O-M-E home to 741-741 for free. 24-7 in the U.S. You can also call 1-800-273-8255 to reach the Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Now here's Ruth with her story. What would you cite as your greatest strength, the strength that pulled you up from underneath that today continues to help you move forward with such um, what seems to be, you know, such grace? Well, thank you. First of all, that's very kind. And I think that there's always, I I actually love talking about this story and love talking about my struggles because I think there is always this perception when we see people who are successful that they have it all together or that they've never struggled, that there's never been hard things that they've had to go through. So for me, and I actually talk about this a little bit in the book, but I, but for me, um, so I got to that point where I would hit that rock bottom place and I had literally no hope. And I, sat there for a few months in that place. And then my dad couldn't, I was living with my dad because nobody else would take me and he didn't really want me either, but he couldn't turn me away. And so he didn't really know what to do with me. And I just laid in bed all day long for months and months. And finally he said, please just go to the, go to the gym like three times a week. That's all I'm asking. Just please go to the gym and, and get a little bit of exercise and then you can go back to bed. And so I did that for a few months, just literally putting one foot in front of the other on the treadmill. That was all I could do. And I'd go back to bed, but it gave me just enough something. I don't know what it was, just enough of a spark have have, like allowed those clouds to lift just far enough that I could go. Maybe, maybe I could, maybe there's still something. And so I called a therapist um, that I'd never worked with before and said, I've just spent the last two and a half years talking about every bad thing that's ever happened to me. I've had all the therapies. None of it's worked. I've had all the medications. None of it's worked. I don't want to talk about it anymore. I just now need to know how to live because I Mm -hmm. didn't know that. And so making that choice to call her and go. And she, that was, and for two and two and a half years after that, that was exactly what we did. And she helped me take one, one tiny little step and then another tiny little step. So the first thing was like learning how to go to the grocery store without having a panic attack. And then it was 
getting out of my dad's house and getting my own apartment. And then it was getting a part-time job and then it was getting a full-time job. And then it was going back to school and finishing my degree. And then it was applying to law school and, and business school and taking the GRE and the GMAT or the LSAT and all of those tests that you have to take and getting a dog. Like it was one dog. Oh my gosh. That's all. That sounds like a lot. I almost think well, you- it didn't happen all at once. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> slowly, but a dog. Yeah. She, we, I got the most hyper, uh, chocolate lab mm-hmm. on the planet. I mean, she was so spastic that I would, I was like forced to take her for multiple walks every single day just to get her out of the house and get her some exercise. But it was the best thing in the world for me. And through all those little of those things, I slowly built a life again after I felt feeling like I could never have. And every time I had some like succeeded in something, it gave me the courage to do the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And honestly, like that, then, you know, I then met my husband and became a mom and all this stuff happened. And I started my business many years later after that, I had been depression free for many years when I started my business, but I never forgot those lessons of just do what, just do one small thing. And then the next thing, and then the next thing. Mm -hmm. And I think too, like my greatest strength maybe if you're asking like what my greatest strength is, it's knowing that failure does not define me. And I am not the sum of the biggest mistakes that I've made so that every time I have to take a new risk in my business, I know that if I fail, it's not, that's also not going to define me, that there is a way to rise again, no matter what you do. And I think that that gives me the ability to keep pushing forward, even when things get hard or scary. Don't be afraid to fail. Be afraid to not try, Ruth says. And that entire episode is available on somoneypodcast.com or iTunes or Spotify, all where podcasts are available, episode 888. Now, last, we have the story of a young immigrant woman from Chile who faced great odds, learning, get this, that she was an undocumented citizen, but only learning this as a teenager which prevented her from being able to work, to drive, to receive financial assistance for school. She very much wanted to go to college. Despite this, she was able to pay her way through college and land incredible jobs. Today, she is a producer for MSNBC and co-author of the book, Earn It, with journalist Mika Brzezinski. Her name is Daniela Pierre Bravo. And here in this excerpt, she breaks down how she overcame some of the challenges and ultimately paved her own path towards success. I mean, this is such an incredible story. And and I know that maybe listeners are wondering along the way, like, well, what were the jobs that you took to pay off your college expenses? And you were a Mary Kay consultant. Um, you worked as an independent contractor. You were building your own team as a senior sales consultant there. Like mm-hmm. this, how old were you? I was 18. Oh my and gosh. the funny part is that the funny part is that I had a Mary Kay consultant when I was, you know, like 16 and, 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 and 17. And I was, um, waiting to turn 18 so that I could, I could, um, buy that $99 kit from Mary Kay and start my business because I knew, I knew that it was going to be an uphill battle because I was undocumented. And at the time there was no law or no um, person in, in an authoritative figure that would, mm. that was saying, you know, if you work really hard, then there's this pathway for you. Right. I had no idea DACA was going to come out until like it came out. And so it was really trying to figure things out, struggling financially a lot. 
while at the same time trying to be creative about the opportunities that you made for yourself in a world where everybody around you didn't believe that you were ever going to have a chance. Um, so even in college, like I had, um, it was, I, I was at a really low point. I mean, I, I needed a guarantor for uh, my loan for college and I, I couldn't find one because I figured out that people looked at me and said, you know, she might be smart and she might be a go-getter, but at the end of the day, she's probably going to graduate with a degree that's not going to take her anywhere because she doesn't have a work permit to work in this country. And so it was a lot of not only kind of defying um, people's expectations, but also trying to figure out a really deep part of you where you realize, okay, you are literally the only person that is going to change your situation and the only person that's going to dictate whether you sink or swim. Mm -hmm. And I had to be that person. So if I had to scrub the floors and work night shifts, cleaning, um, you know, rectories or, you know, going with my mom to clean houses and, um, all of these like side side jobs, I, I was going to do them because it was my glimmer of hope. And so I think from a really young age that has allowed me to be acutely aware of my finances and has really dictated, you know, how I approach them to this day. And we should mention, too, that eventually, um, just before graduating college, you, sp- you spoke earlier about not having a work permit and people being wary of that and not maybe being your co- co-signer or your guarantor. But you did um, manage to become a part of the DREAM Act um, and be a student um, as Obama. That was Obama's um, executive order. Uh, so you're able to retain a work permit through that. I mean, that's you must have felt so I mean, that's just like the luckiest thing. That's like such a lucky break in some ways, right? I mean, I just, I just can't even believe it because I, I know that may sound like a kind of insignificant, insignificant thing to have just a, a, the, the, um, the ability to have a state ID, but you know, so many things that, you know, I, I, um, saw other people have, you know, taken for granted that they t- maybe took for granted, whether it was driving with a license or flying on a plane, like all these things. And it's really crazy when you are so embedded in a culture. Like I feel so American, right? Because I grew up here and I, I um, went to a school where I was the only Latina in my high school and the only Latina in my grade. And so there was a certain type of stigma growing up where not only was I have a different background, but just a totally different um, kind of subgroup where I, I was in the shadows for a, a long time. Mm. Uh, I, I didn't come out. Um, as uh, a DACA recipient until I wrote about it in a piece um, for NBC Latino. And that was when I already had my my job here at NBC. Um, so that was really, I mean, I can't explain to you the type of um, immense gratitude and just kind of overwhelming sense of joy that came when, when I was sitting at my um, cubicle at my internship at Bad Boy Entertainment and Somebody texted me, texted me and said, turn on the TV. And Obama was, um, you know, speaking, I think it was from, from the oval, uh, the, the garden that he usually speaks at to give addresses. And he said the, the executive action that he was going to implement and it changed everything in just like a matter of seconds. It's, it's, wow. the, it's the thing that has changed my life for forever. And you're changing lives. I mean, I think your story is is inspiring so many people. And we started this conversation with the, you know, the the goal of your book that you co-wrote with Mika about 
encouraging young people to um, identify and really own their worth. And I think that is such a challenge when you're young and you're not confident yet because you don't feel like you have enough experience. And maybe you're feeling just happy to be there because it's a competitive job market and you don't want to, you know, um, create controversy by asking for a raise. This is all the internal dialogue. I'm, I'm sure that is going through so many young people's heads. And how do you cut through that? And can you give us some tips on how maybe your peers and in, in that are trying to, you know, work their way through their careers can land in a place where they feel more confident and can actually voice and be an advocate for themselves? Totally. I think um, the imposter syndrome is a huge thing that I had to really combat from day one because you, you hear me talk about all the experiences that I've had and I'm so grateful to have them. Like I was so grateful to be able to walk dogs with my unpaid internship. And and, and so this, this kind of idea of being so grateful just to be there was a great thing, right? Because when you're young, you're eager. Um, but then you get into like the second and third, you know, phases of your career I and mean, the second and third year of your career. And you have to be able to differentiate from the fact that you're just grateful to be there to really owning what it is that you bring to the table. And one of the things we always tell young people is to detail all of the work that they're doing. Um, and it's tough, especially being a young woman um, with all of like the the crazy un, untrue stereotypes that many people of other generations put on millennials. Like they're, you know, impatient and um, that they're narcissistic and all this stuff. So there's certainly the right timing to do it, um, to ask for more. But from the start, I think that women should own the fact, you know, whether you're the first Latino or whether you're the first person of color in a room, um, just own that fact and know that you bring so much value to the table just by being there and own your space. That's the first thing I say. And then for the imposter syndrome, specifically when you're negotiating for more money, because that's really what matters at the end of the day is your ability to ask for more is to, again, detail everything that you've done from the moment you walked in. Because I think as we were doing this book, we were trying to figure out what were some of the things that young people, both men and women, were having the hardest time combating when it came time to ask for more. And I think timing was something that was very um, scenario specific to each person. And a lot of people ask, you know, you know, when's the right time to ask for more? And I think it's totally up to the environment that you work in. Um, for example, in my own situation, I came into a role where a lot was um, a lot was asked of me. Like I was working overtime hours like crazy. I, I I was the first person to the studio. I was managing the set in the mornings, and then I would leave the office around noon. And then for the rest of the day, I was dealing with publicists to help, you know, with the logistics for the next day. And I wasn't done with my day until like literally 10 p.m. So it was a it was a straight 4 a.m. To, to 9 to 10 p.m. job. And so that could have easily, for somebody in my situation, like so many other young people do, they come in, they're so grateful for the opportunity to work for a live show. But if I hadn't documented that uh, uh, a year and a half or two years and said, you know, when the time for a promotion came and if I didn't had, I hadn't vocalized all of the overtime that I had been getting, um, because my when I or I switched from overtime to salary, obviously that that um, the amount that they were able to give me was lower than what I had was getting from my other job. So I had to make a decision on whether I was going to take a promotion for lower pay, and I had to really find the words and 
you know, all of the details of the value that I brought to really impart that with my boss. Um, so detailing everything that you've done is so, so important. And then, um, the last thing I would say when it comes to, um, getting what you're worth at a young age is don't take no for an answer. I think so many of us are sort of, um, dissuade with the first no that we hear that we immediately think, okay, then I'll never be able to go back and ask my boss again, ask again in three months, you know, because Mm -hmm. a lot of it has to do with how the company's doing, um, or, you know, what the headcount is at the office. And so don't take no for an answer, just kind of adjust, um, what your pitch is or what you're asking for to kind of, um, comply with what, with what your, with what your boss is, is, um, asking you to do. So whether it's, you know, asking for what it is that you need to change in your role or you need to be working towards is really important because you should always go back and ask. Don't take no for an answer. Take matters into your own hands and keep trying. Daniela's book again is called Earn It. And this episode aired August 26th, episode 930. And that's a wrap. Wishing you all who celebrate Christmas today a festive, happy, a safe, a peaceful, restful day. And want to say to everybody, I appreciate you so much for choosing So Money as your go-to money podcast. It is a complete honor. If the new year is anything like 2019, as far as the depth and intimacy of the stories that guests share on this podcast, it's going to be a fine year. Happy holidays. And I hope your day is so money. 